There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Mike Boris and this is Straight Talk. It's a huge burden to be overshadowed by a parent. Believe me, I know it. Often your individualism is restricted by the parents' achievements, and sometimes it's almost as if they precede you. They enter the room before you. You know, their reputation precedes yours. I only know this because i got four boys, and my boys have often told me this. They have experienced the same constraint on their own lives. Now, Tim Olson is one of Australia's most prominent art dealers in his own right, and he has continued to inject his energy and contribute to the Australian art scene. But he also happens to be the son of this country's most famous living artist, at least in my opinion, and that of many others, that being John Olson. Tim found himself growing up under his father's shadow from a young age, and to some degree, this limited Tim's own growth, his own individual growth. This weight, this pressure of living up to his father's reputation, Tim was travelling down a dark path of alcoholism. He got to a stage in his life where he was knocking on death's door, literally overweight, drinking way too much, way too often, and something had to change, either that or the obvious. Now 10 years sober, Tim has managed to move through probably what would I would consider to be the darkest time of his life. But equally, maybe in that dark period, the most important part of his personal development commenced. So for us, it's time for No Bullshit, and we're going to talk to Tim Olson. Tim Olson, welcome to Straight Talk. Been a long time, mate. It's been a long time, Mark. A long, long time. Uh, uh, Tim and I have history, like good history. Um, obviously, he runs an art gallery. Not obviously, uh, he has an art gallery, has many art galleries, has had for a long, long time. But uh, I sort of, I reckon... My first memory of you was when I was married to Catherine and I lived down at a house in Watson's Bay, like in Robertson Park there. Mm. And um, I remember I purchased from you a number of art pieces, and um, but in particular I commissioned John. Well, through you, I didn't commission John, I through you mm. commissioned John to uh, give me a painting and mm. um we got it and uh, when i got it i went oh there's no no frogs or brogers or anything in there and i gave it back to you and you sent it back to your old man and he got something but i remember i can't remember it was a frog by the way my ex-wife got that i don't know what's in there i can't remember because when we split up she got that right but it was one of my favorite paintings to be honest here and yeah. the uh the process of having an art gallery a gallery owner who represented 
a famous artist who happened to be your father, um, the flexibility and the commerciality and also the like just the common sense of you at the time. You were a young man then. This was like uh, you're around 60 now. This is about to be 25, maybe 30 years ago. Would that be right? Would that be it's about? It's about 30 or, you know, 25 years. 25 yeah, years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, but you, your common sense and your you, just your approach was really refreshing to me. I'd been used to using used to dealing with other art dealers. Mm. And I never got that. I always got that, um, frankly, that shifty, I wasn't sure feeling. Mm. You know, like I, I remember one stage there, one guy I was buying th- stuff through in Wallara was buying stuff from me in New York. And he bought me a, uh, um, what's the name uh, of the famous photographer who's had a very controversial period about uh, Australian guy about, a, about five, six years ago about photographing young kids. Oh, that's Bill Henson. Bill Henson, right. Mm-hmm. So this particular individual, I won't name him, say his name, but uh, he went to an auction in New York and uh, bought me a the, the uh, photograph that Bill did, which is supposed to be the original photograph of a book that Bill Henson put out. Mm-hmm. It was a young girl, very sort of um, mysterious-looking photo of this young girl. Just just a face, but I might add. Um, but it was, it, it was quite an intriguing photo, but... I never ever thought, I've never ever really believed and I've had many odd thoughts which I do every day when I look at this thing, it's in my house. Mm-hmm. Is this for fucking real or not? Does this guy just dutted me and put a beautiful frame around it? Mm-hmm. And I paid a lot of money for it. And I, I, I don't want to go back and check its authenticity out because mm-hmm. yeah, I just, I, it's mine now, I paid for it. I just want to leave it the way it is. I mm-hmm. quite enjoy looking at it anyway. Yeah. Um, but you, you were the opposite of that, Tim. You, you were pretty honest, and uh, like you fill my house up with art. The Watson's Bay house, this one now, um, and I still every day I look at some of the paintings, and then I, I just love. Them. I love the. Uh, I keep saying Larry Emder's sister, but I shouldn't say it's Martine Emder. Martine Emder, yeah. Um, which was her old series where the, he had those paintings of girls with bikinis or sometimes nude underwater. Mm, mm, They're mm. so good. I mean, you must have had a wonderful period in your life in terms of your experiences. Yeah, dealing with those individuals, those great artists. Yeah, I, I think you know one of the things about my business is um, I was fortunate enough to grow up around the table at an early age, even being under the table whilst there were lunches going on, and there were there was Brett Whiteley, there was Arthur Boyd, there was Sidney Nolan. And I don't even remember the conversations, but I remember what they felt like. That's interesting. And so with that instinct, I think a lot of what I do today in regard to new artists, because I don't want my business just to be all about me and my father. Sure, he's, he's certainly an important artist and he, he's certainly a blue chip artist. But I knew that if I was to have a long-term future, I had to use my instincts in regard to knowing who's real and who isn't. In you terms know. of artists. In terms of art, who's an authentic artist? Who's, you know, you can you can categorize artists into either being true artisans or journeymen. What does that mean, a true artisan, like, and compared to a journeyman? Well, uh, you know, I think art is a calling. Like my father grew up in a house where there was no books, no paintings, but he had this impulse to draw, and he would draw. The only paper he could get, he grew up in Newcastle. The only paper he get was his mother's cookbooks, and they were full of his drawings. Now, he grew up in a house that had nothing to do with art whatsoever, but he was just born with this instinct. 
Now that's a true art. A true artisan is someone who is who is born with the idea that this is a calling, but also follows through with learning how to actually, like a carpenter, like any tradesperson, learns the absolute craft and skill of what it means to be able to make things properly. You know, there's no bullshitting this. There's, my father says today, there are a lot of painters out there, but very few artists, you know, because they're, they're, we now live in a world where, you know, basically it's more about marketing and branding to an audience that's naive to knowing what's good or bad. I was fortunate enough to know who's good and, and who is real. And when it comes to young artists, I can tell, I can just feel it when they've got it. And my business is now 30 years old this year. And and I think my my longevity is based on the fact that I've been able to discern who has a future and who doesn't. So your your father, it's just interesting. You just yeah. said that John had a genetic predisposition to being an artisan, a, a genuine, authentic artist. An artist, yes. As opposed to being pushed into it, no one sent him to art school. He just he just wanted to be. He that just too. didn't wake up one day and say, hey, "I'm going to be a great artist." But and and for you though, I just something I just gleaned from what you just said. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you were genetically predisposed. To be someone who could recognise this, well, or do you think you learnt that as a result of well, being sort of not tutored, but um, being in the presence of uh, these great authentic artists? Well, I think I think when I grew up in the house that I did, that was full of amazing sculpture and art. Is this I, a house in Watson's Bay? This is a house in Watson's Bay. Yep. You know, and we also lived in Spain and France, but you know, we we always lived in houses full of art. And subconsciously, I was getting an education without even knowing it. You know, an education that you can't get even get at art school. Did John walk in and say, hey, hey, Tim, this is, and your sister, yeah. this is blah, blah, did he instruct you or did you well, just see it? Well, we'd ask questions yeah. about what was what and then we'd meet who was who, who did, who did what, 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 you know, and putting all the pieces together, essentially, um, you know, it's all very well to, to have a couple of good artists on side, but you've got to have a good eye to build upon that. But you were asking, that's interesting, you were asking the questions as a kid. Yeah. So your sister's not an art dealer. She, she's a sculptor. No, or, Louise is a very famous international designer. She I mean, has, she, I mean, she does all those she, um, resin. She, she has dinosaur, she has yeah, dinosaur, dinosaur designs. Yep. And she's got stores, two in Melbourne, three in Sydney, um, one in New York. I call that a sculptor because I, I see that stuff as sculptor. Oh, that's, she'd be flattered you said that. No, because, I, I really yeah. do. I buy her stuff. I yeah. mean, I've got some of her stuff and I look yeah. in the windows. It's beautifully displayed, the one in Paddington. I don't know if it's still there. I haven't been there for a couple of years, but the one yeah. in Paddington. Great place to buy gifts for people, by the way, especially gifts for women when you don't know what to buy because Absolutely. they all, all the women love it. But yeah. but she didn't turn out like you, um, or you didn't turn out like her either. You but you but it seems like you had a sort of like it did a, a self imposed PhD in learning about people in the art world. Well, I I did, and but I also went to university and I went to I I, I went through a seven year education where I learned how to paint, I learned about drawing. I learned about printmaking, but then I went on and did a, a degree in in education, which involved learning about psychology, and um, and in itself, I'm essentially be, I'm a teacher. I became a teacher. I taught at Sydney Grammar, and then I was offered a job in an art gallery, and I never changed my idea that I was a teacher. And running an art gallery is about teaching. You know, I've got people that come in that know fuck all about what's on the wall, but I will guide them in the most unpretentious way, in a very real way, trying to tell the narrative 
what are the metaphors, why is this good, in a way that's not art speak, but it's simple language. Well, you, you sort of did that with me because yeah. I'm one of those people yeah. who knows fuck all about it all. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. sort of might look at something that looks pretty yeah. good, yeah. but I don't know. Like, I really don't know. Yeah. And you came to my house at uh, Camp Cove there and uh, yeah. the next thing I know I've got a house full of art. And mm. uh, But you you, you, you basically curated every item. I don't think I said I don't like one item. You just said, and you actually come in, I think you bought a dude and you put it all up for me, hung it up, I come home and it was all hung up. Was, yeah, yeah. Well, In my bathrooms and nothing's moved. Everything is, and that's like 15 years ago. And it still feels fresh. If, if every day I look and I think, oh, and I look, yeah. I see something different every day. And I say, yeah. oh, that looks cool. That, I really like that where it is. There's, yeah. there's one in there which is a, a green, just all green, but different sort of shades of green. Yeah. And it's in the but bathroom. But you know why it looks different? Because you're different. Is that it? And this is the thing, you know, what makes me happy is not having to tell people that, okay, what you bought has gone up in value. Most people don't give a shit because they love it, they want to keep it. The thing is that we, as we develop as people, um, we also change the way we see the world. And if you have a good dealer who says, well, you should buy this because it will grow with you, and then you find out 15 years later you still love it and you only start seeing more in it, that's a success in my mind, you know. Well, you, yeah. in your my case, yeah, you achieved yeah. that. Um, yeah. I don't know whether it's gone or not. I wouldn't have a faintest idea. I don't really care that much. It's yeah. I, I can't explain. That sounds a bit um, pompous and pretentious no. and indulgent. I, I do care if it goes up. I, I definitely care if it goes down. But yeah. But but I really do love it. I, I, as I said, I, I often think of myself. Well, maybe Mark. For others, it's a bit boring. Maybe you should you know get some new art or move things around or whatever. I don't know. Uh, fuck it. No, I'm happy where it is. Yeah. That's the sort of conversation you and I ha- would have over lunch, which yeah, is the sort I've, of conversation you and I did have over lunch. In the days of Lucio. H- how many years ago was that last oh, time we had lunch? Last time we had lunch was about 12 years ago. And, uh, okay. Uh, no, ten, yeah, 10 years ago, and I, and I was on the precipice of my what I would call my awakening. Okay, yeah, so yeah. how much was – because when I first saw you this morning, mm. I commented on how good you looked. Yeah. Um, How much would you have weighed then? I was approximately – 149 kilograms. Big. Yeah. And if if someone asked me, have you seen <laughs> Tim lately, back then, 10 years ago, mm. I would say, yeah, probably every every time I ever go to Lucio's, I would see Tim. Or um, Well, having a go in next door to Lucio's wasn't very good for me. No, it wasn't. And <laughs> and Lucio's food was indulgent and yeah. you can have some wine and it's easy to stay there and all the, and you had a lot of your art. Or I did a lot art. of business in yeah, there, but totally. every time I walked by, he'd say, come in and try a new pasta I've done. Correct. <laughs> and, and, but then, but also you were, you know, you'd have a dry glass of wine or two. And oh. what was your life like at that time? Um, to me as an outsider, I thought it was fucking wonderful. You looked like it, you had the best life of all time. It, well, it's, it's a great facade, but underneath I was struggling. I was really struggling. Um, you know, I've written this book, which is really about um, not just about um, my my journey um, in life and my upbringing, whatever, but but also something that really obsessed me for for a long time that stopped me from growing. And this is not a, a problem that exists just for silver tails or people of privilege who have um, iconic parents. Would you describe yourself as one of those people? Well, I define. I, I, parent, I totally yeah. defined my life according to who my father was, and and I had this enormous fear. Is how someone said to me once, you know, they're going to be talking about your dad in two hundred years, but they're not going to be talking about you. Now that freaked me out. It made me feel totally worthless, and um, and you know, I I essentially um, 
in a way, because I defined myself by him, I only started getting smaller and smaller. You know, if you compare, if you're if you're a pebble trying to be a rock, and you keep comparing yourself to the rock, you're going to stay a pebble. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. Yeah, you know? and um, and what I had to realize is I had to change my my values. I gave up drinking. Um, I sort of had a an uh, an epiphany. What and was the epiphany? Can you explain that to the, me? The epiphany was probably waking up under the Christmas tree and found that I hadn't uh, gone to bed. I'd stayed up and I woke up on the floor with a couple of bottles of wine empty and my son waking me up under the Christmas tree. On Christmas Day? On Christmas Day, crying, saying, all I want you to do, Dad, was to help me open my presents and you're drunk, you know. How old was he? And he was like three, three years old. Now, that, that's disgraceful, you know. And the next morning I woke up and I flew to Los Angeles and I went to Betty Ford Clinic and I haven't picked up a drink in over 10 and a half years. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. But that's when I started to realise. I mean, I remember going into the counsellor there and the first thing he said to me, what's the worst thing that could happen here? And I said, well, I could die, you know. And he said to me, no, actually that's the best thing that can happen here because according to your family you're a fucking pain in the ass, you know. And it's exactly what I, as hard as it was to hear that, when someone tells you you're better off dead than being alive, you know you've got a problem. Mm. And I ended up um, spending three months there. And um, and it gets back to, you know, like when I was reading your book about, di- you know, divergent thinking, I, I also knew um, Edward de Bono who, who taught yep. me a bit about lateral thinking. You know, what I realised is that um, ultimately um, I think the whole thing is that I had to somehow find a new way to live without alcohol. Now, we live our lives going on as though we can we can think something and it'll happen. It doesn't work like that. You've got to live it. And there's a great mantra I learned there, which was you can't think your way into a new way of living. You can only live your way into a new way of thinking. And after a month, I was going to fly back to Australia from, from Palm Springs, where Betty Ford was, and I realised, shit, you know, I'm not well. You know, I'm still carrying all this um, self-pity, poor Tim, and it doesn't belong to me. And so I had to keep living my way into a new way of thinking. So I ended up staying another two months and I came back a different person. And I, I didn't define myself by the things that I thought were challenges to me. I realized that I had it in myself, something that was capable of a happy life it wasn't about what other people think. It wasn't about having to be famous. It was about just being honest with myself, you know. And um, I still struggle with that sometimes, you know. I still struggle, particularly when you're trying to appease someone, you'll say anything to, to, to avoid confrontation. We all hate confrontation. But, you know, it's very hard to keep building myself back. But I lived my way into a new life, which has turned out to be the most incredible incredible odyssey and to but, think that but would you say that going back from the beginning like is that is that is did the odyssey start for you as a three-year-old to today yeah, or well, you're talking the last 10 years well there's there was a there was a wonderful movie that, about colette who was a famous french writer at the end of the movie there's a wonderful line because she she was a, a brilliant writer but her husband used she used to publish her books under her husband's name because she was a woman it was difficult for a woman to be taken seriously in 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 I mean, it's gone into society for hundreds of years. But ultimately, she ended up writing in her own name. 
But at the end of the movie, there's a wonderful line by which she says, I've had the most fabulous life, if only I knew it sooner. Yeah. And I lived most of my life feeling sorry for myself until I, I got the grog out of me. It, it, mm. Can I ask you, is it the grog or was it the, the weight of a famous father? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Mark, it was, it was a challenge because my father's not only a very charismatic man and a talented man, but he's got a brilliant mind. You know, he's an avid reader. He embraces poetry. Um, he's, he's, you know, he's a, he's a real raconteur. Would you describe him as a genius? Um, I think genius, I think the word genius is a, um, you know, a very, a very selective word that can, you know, a, one genius to one person may be um, someone who's sort of an abstract thinker to another. Um, I mean, I heard a friend of mine's making a film on Einstein in Hollywood. And uh, some of the some of the things about Einstein, he found out. He said to me, "You know, Einstein was no Einstein." <laughs> you know, <which> I, <laughs> Einstein's become another another word for genius. <laughs> another word for genius, exactly. But you know, we're but all, was he an obsessed person with his craft? Yeah, obsessed person. But as I got older, I realised that he had his own character defects. He wasn't perfect, and in fact, I went from worshipping him to having more empathy for him. That's it. That's crazy, yeah. man. Like, yeah, yeah you, you worshipped him. Okay, that's, that's cool. I turned him into a demigod. You yeah, know? So, you, yeah, yeah. so you you worshipped him as a young man or a young boy. Yeah. And, but yeah. then over a period you started to work out his flaws or saw his flaws. Yeah. And then did he de- did he demonise – did you demonise him at any point? Oh, look, you know. Um, did we, you blame him? No, no. Well, yeah, I did blame him. I did blame him because he sidelined me at certain times in my life and, and you know, he, he's been married four times and he's outlived each wife. Shit, that's me. Oh, <laughs> I'm-, <laughs> I'm halfway there. But um, the whole thing is that, um, you know, in a sense I kind of um, had to realise that my dad actually is a boy. There's a wounded child inside him. His father was an alcoholic. And um, it, I remember as a child living at Watson's Bay, um, you know, the police would turn up with my grandfather and my, my father would have to come to the door and say, is this your father? He said, yes. He said, well, we've, we've been, we've caught him stealing the milk money. So, he, you know, um, he could drink and my father would end up having to bail him out, whatever. But my grandfather was a brilliant, brilliant salesman. He was beginning of the Cooey Clothing Company. He was one of the most stylish men. Unfortunately, he went to war and never recovered and died on the street, but he was a brilliant retailer, which is, I think, is why my sister and I have got this retail gene as well as the artistic gene. But, um, but ultimately, I saw in my father the fact that he too needs, needed a lot of love in a way that by looking up to him, it wasn't the right kind of love he really needed. What he needed was a true mate, a son who could look at him in the eye and say, Dad, I love you. And um, I care about you in a way that's not patronising, but it's just solid, you know, that, that no matter what, we're there for each other. And it took me, you know, 40 years to work that out. Are you there now? Oh, I'm, there. I'm down at the Southern Highlands with him every weekend. Um, I mean, we've been in a working partnership for over 30 years and working with, your pe- working with family is bloody hard, hard you know. But, um, but we It's really hard for the father, by the way. Do you have the father? But Mark, what I what I really want to say about this is this is not about you know having a famous father. This this whole idea of of turning your parent into a 
into a demigod is not just to do with having a, a you know being the son of a or daughter of a billionaire or having a, a famous parent who's an actor. Um, you know, we any of us can turn our parents into demigods and and make them unsurmountable. Um, kind of um, role models that we think we can never become ourselves. But that's interesting because, yeah. like, most parents say you're not a billionaire or whatever mm. and, or famous, but you think I've got to be a role model to my children, mm. so I've got to be strong. Mm. What you're saying is as a result of that, mm. you can actually create this issue for your kid. Your kid can either respond in a way that they copy you and become you mm. or – they try to copy you, but they determine themselves that they can't become you, and as a result of that, they then have a burden. It's a fucking lose each way sort of thing, you know. Well, it's a difficult thing. Well, I, you know, I certainly didn't want to be uh, like my father and walk around with a beret. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the beret. It suits him. It does. Yeah, but he, you know, he's earned that beret. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You earned that beret. You earned exactly. that beret. But um, you know, I've I've realised I've got other talents, and. Um, and one of the things which I did when I first got sober is I got a life coach to come in and help me with my time management. And uh, she asked me to write a thousand words about my life. And it was not long after my mother had died. And um, I was quite, you know, quite because my having a, a gregarious father, but also but then having a mother who's very demure, very quiet, and and very very wise. I learned more about being a, a true human being from her than I did my father. My father gave me lots of colour, but my mother gave me the idea of how important it is to have dignity. And so she um, gave you depth. So she gave me the depth, you know. And and she said, she, the best thing she ever said to me once was, always remember in whoever's company you're in, even if it's a prime minister or a captain of industry, there's always something you know that they don't know. So never feel less than. And I used to hear that, but never took it. To, you know, never grasped it. These these days I do, and I can sit sit at the table with anybody, and not feel as though that I'm someone who's um, small compared to someone else because I've been gifted a knowledge, and I worked for my knowledge as well, having studied that that can impart something to them which they can learn from or find interesting. But that mm. that that um, understanding mm. of what you have to deliver. Mm. How long did it take you to work that out? I mean, it's, it's far it, too long. Yeah. Well, no, seriously. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and and I would ask you this: um, Do you think privilege that you know, was dotted over your life from maybe you know, the time mm. you opened up the gallery, mm. for example, it wasn't always privilege, but mm. privilege sort of um, murky the water and sort of was a bit like a bit of a blindfold to you and then sort of led you down to, you know, having lunch at Lucio's and drinking wine, being bon yeah. vivant and have, being everyone's best friend and blah, blah, blah. I mean, do, do you think privilege actually and, and booze uh, clouded your view of yourself? Well, it certainly did. And, um, you know, there was a lot of bullshit factor about, you know, um, you know, one of the things I had to really realise that, that that I'm not the guy, I'm not, I'm not the guy who has his name above the door in the gallery. I'm, I had to really learn who I was underneath all that. And sure, I was, you know, I was, I was always good for a lunch. I, and I had no shortage of friends saying, hey, Tim, meet me down at Lucia's or let's go to Catalina. Let's come and meet me on my boat in the Mediterranean and have a week with me. And, um, you know, with the whole gang and 
when I stopped drinking, all that stopped. You know, I really learned who my friends were. Did you have to reshuffle your friends, or did just by not drinking? <laughs> well, do they that for sort you? of shuffled me because they didn't want to get pissed in front of me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, they didn't yeah, want yeah. to see me. They didn't want me to see them at their vulnerable self. And were yeah. your friends school friends? Uh, friends from, well, you know, I had an interesting education. I went to a one-teacher school in Victoria when we lived in Melbourne for a while. I, I went to school in Spain. Um, I went to Vaucluse Public. Um, I remember Malcolm Turnbull being a senior there when I was only a little kid. Russell Crowe was there as well at one stage at a great little school. And I love the public. Close now. Yeah, it's a shame. But it was a great little school. And um, But then ultimately when my father became more successful, um, he realised the importance of education, so I was sent to Cranbrook. And I happened to be good at rugby, so I kind of got a scholarship to go to King's. And King, so you went from Cranbrook to, to King's? To King's, yeah. And King's was the best thing that ever happened to me, you know, because I was at school with Rodney Adler and Jody Rich and uh, yeah, you you got know, away from Warwick that. Fairfax and all that kind of thing. I, I remember Warwick used to get a limo to drop him across, across the road from school, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, um, look, no criticisms to any of those people. Um, that's that's their that's their life. But the thing is that going to Kings, I met country boys. Yeah, yeah, totally. And a border. And a border. And I was a border. Yep. And we didn't go to Aspen. Hmm. We didn't have a house at Palm Beach. Hmm. They didn't. You didn't have the Rolls Royce or the Bentley to drop you off at school. No. Yeah, you didn't yeah. go on annual holiday skiing for no. three weeks. But what I did do was I'd go out in the bush with them, fix yeah. fences, yeah. crutch sheep, yeah. you know, and I had the most fantastic holidays out in the bush, you know working with jackaroos and learning more about Aborigines and, you know, just what it is that these kids were far more developed characters who had far more character and truth about them because they went home and they worked. They realised that running a farm or running a family business was about hard work no matter how old you were. And and that really taught me an ethic. And the reason they were yeah. at Kings, a lot of those kids were parents ran the farms and, you know, they, there was no – other education process that so you sent them into the mm. to Parramatta to go to Kings. You know, and I'm one of these parents. Um, mm. The reason you send your kids to your kids to Cranbrook, mm. and or and in my case, put them in a boarding school at Cranbrook, was so that I could get on with my business. Yeah, and uh, I someone else minded them and raised them, so to speak. Yes, in, in difficult periods like year twelve, yeah. year eleven. In my case, some my, some of my other boys. I was divorced, so my you know the boys were young. I, I I just I was traveling all around the world doing my craft, yeah, which in those days was uh, the wizard business. And mm. to some extent, some of the things you said about John actually resonated with me because uh, I was a selfish. Well, I wasn't consciously selfish, um, but I was selfish in the eyes of my kids for sure. I would have been selfish because mm. I had money. I took the the money option. I bought them an education. And mm. I bought someone, and I bought them an environment in a community, whilst I could go run off and do what I wanted to do. Yeah, and I I was a mature person, extremely mature in a personal sense. So I didn't really didn't really know what I was doing. I mean, I was just doing what I thought was instinctively the right thing to do. Mm. Mm. Um, and uh, by the way, and I had very good parents who were always sort of tipping to me, um, but mm. they were very soft and gentle. Mm. Mm. And uh, or, or just didn't want to upset me, um, so they didn't really tip to me hard. But I wish someone had it. But and so I've spent the rest of my life trying to repair that, which hopefully you know it's a long process. It, it gets done, but maybe I know I know 
you talk about this in, in your book um, about your dad always. Like, I remember your dad, he'd go to the, uh, Western Australia or something out in the bush mm. somewhere and he'd, he'd go with another couple of famous artists. They'd fly over Australia and, you know, like in a small aircraft and they'd stay there for ages painting. Mm. And I used to think to myself, what about the kids? Mm. I never thought that about myself, by the way. Mm. I, I mm. just didn't use the same application to myself yeah. and my kids. But, uh, and I guess what you're saying to me is uh, over a period of time, I mean, while Street Kings, it would have been good. But, like, at the same time, you miss your dad. You miss that influence. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, um, with dad, we came to have to understand that for it, was, it wasn't selfish. It was about survival. And he had to put What his, does that mean? Well, he had to he had to put his art first, you know. But why? From a financial point of view, is that what you from mean? From a financial point of view, yeah. So yeah. I have to produce the product and yeah. get it out there, yeah. Otherwise, we can't survive. Yeah, and then the women, and then we'd come third. But we, you know, it, it did develop a certain sense of a, a, a abandonment in a way. But what's incredible is now he's ninety four. Still alive is amazing. And we have a beautiful farm down in the Southern Highlands, and we're there every weekend. He's We've forgiven him because we understand his, that he's, he had to satisfy his needs to do what he had to do. But the incredible thing is he's forgiven himself and he's able to say, I love you, my son, that he could never say for most of well, his that, life. Well, that's an interesting one. I might, yeah. Maybe I'd love to come in and see John and say hello to yeah. him again. I haven't seen yeah. him for ages. But yeah, you should find out how he did that because that's something yeah. I haven't done with my own sons. Yeah. And, I, yeah. And, and I think it's sort of overdue from my point of view too. Mm. It's mm. an interesting um, – there's a process involved with that. I mean, I have. Uh, I mean, I'm spending a lot of time. I'm in a good space. My kids. I get on with everyone really well. But probably haven't had the hard conversation. Did you have a hard conversation with John? Did John have a hard conversation with you? <laughs> I think. That, I think it involves several conversations. After Betty Ford, or uh, yeah. Well, look. You know, I I was in a position where you know I met. I used I used alcohol to medicate my feelings, and yeah. and and you know I was in brain fog most of the time. Um, you know, Dad was in a, 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 a marriage where it was, he was sort of almost emotionally inex- inaccessible. What, what does that mean? Well, you know, I couldn't really talk to him about truth. I couldn't confront him about how I felt and how I thought about, or, you know, what I, my opinion of how, he, how I thought he was behaving wasn't. In relation to his relationship? In his relationship, no. In, well, his relationship maybe yes, but more to do. With his relationship with me, right, and um, why, but why couldn't you talk to him? Why, what, what do you think that was? Because he hates. I think also this gene of hating confrontation yeah, runs yeah. in the family as well. I think it, I think a lot of us don't like confrontation. No one likes to have to hear the truth, and um, but ultimately, um, the the clearer I got, and the more I was able to speak from the point of view of my centre, just to, the more I became an authentic person the more he started to respect me. And so when I said something, it, he knew, and I, and I never, without having to confront him, it's some, sort of almost like gestalt conversations, you know, where you're able to say things in a way that um, he doesn't find it as an affront, but it's really the idea or the, the, uh, the, the sort of the, anal- the, anal- the analytical aspect yeah, yeah. of how we talk about life 
without talking more about philosophical, philosophical yeah. than actually pointing the finger at him. Yeah, yeah. So not yeah. a blame game, but a no. philosophical discussion. That's right. And, and, and unemotional, so to speak, like uh, yeah. sort of more logic, more rational. Mm, mm. Is, that, is that right? Absolutely. And who yeah. started that conversation? Was it the father or the son? Well, it was me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was that's me. interesting. And, and, um, and, you know, look, um, you know, writing this book, you know, when I f- it took me six, six, seven years to write this book, and if you had have read the book to start with, it was almost unpublishable because page after page was blaming somebody for the reason why I did this and I did that. I mean, there's only one person that held the bottle to my mouth and that was me, yeah, you know. Right. And, um, and I could blame all sorts of people, but ultimately I had to, when I finally, as, as I wrote the book, I grew as well. And I realised that I have to take responsibility for myself and ultimately um, through the process of really doing an inventory on myself, I realised in every case that where someone had pissed me off, I'd played a part in them being pissed off to start with. And I lived in ignorance. I couldn't see. I had to really, really dig deep and say, oh, fuck, you know, I was a dickhead to start with and this is why perhaps this happened to me. And, you know, to drink over it, it was a cop-out when I should have actually been having a good look at myself. So the, the book now is, is, doesn't have any resentment in it. It has no blame game in it. It's full of stories. And one would think, oh, God, who wants to read a book that doesn't have a bit of gossip and, you know, and has a dig at someone or whatever? But the book is full of great stories, and that's what people want. They want great stories, and I didn't have to assassinate anybody. And the book's, you know, on the precipice of a bestseller. It's going into its third print. I never knew I could write a book. I never knew I could write. But through the process of being able to internally go into looking at my life as it being a series of wonderful experiences, but also discovering the fact that I had something to impart that was to do with the journey that happens to a lot of people. And there's always a lot of people in every family have someone who suffers from addiction from one form or another. Mm. And I can't believe the amount of people that have come forward and said to me that I loved your book because there's someone in my family who also we'd love them to, you know. And, you know, I mean, it's not a book about my problems. It's also to do a book to do with my understanding of or my philosophy on how we can come to have acceptance for who we are and also be able to um, build relationships around you um, that are productive rather than to do with, as I said before, blaming or basically, in a sense, creating a fe- the right feeling. You know, whether you're running a restaurant, or whether you're running a, a finance business, whether you, whatever you do in a relationship, um, it's even about a great painting. It's all about getting the feeling right. You know, and, um, you know, you're very good at getting the feeling right. Obviously, a lot of your success is to do with the fact that you know how to basically create the right energy around things to make, to make things work. I think a culture within a business is an extremely important thing. My business has blossomed by the fact that I'm very conscious. I've got staff that have been with me now for nearly 30 years, and it's the culture of my business that is as much a part as the, the artists that actually exhibit within it. And, um, and it began, it all began with me having, you know, um, you know, I was always blaming other people. Why, why doesn't that artist want to come and show with me or why, 
didn't that collector come to me? Why didn't that guy go and buy his art from me when he went somewhere else? And I was always thinking, well, you know, why, what is it? What is it? You know, with those bastards, you know? <laughs> and I had to stop and think, it's not about my artists. It's, it's not about them making a choice against me. What I have to do is actually have a good look at myself because this is where it begins and this is where it ends. I think every single business owner mm. has to think that way and we mm. need to all start thinking that way. The culture of a business is about how the business feels. How the business feels is the con- aggregation of all the individuals, how they feel. And that sense of – and ultimately it's really important that you feel, the proprietor, you're equivalent to them. You're not feeling like shit about yourself and getting on the piss and, you know, living in a fog and not actually feeling. I just think that, um, you know, you can, you can bust your ass to try and make things happen. I think I realised that there are a lot of things I'm powerless over that I had to surrender. For example? Well, that I can't control other people. I can't make other people do things. I can't change the way other people think. You can't decide yeah. which which is your dad's yeah. new wife or what she's yeah. going to be like. Exa- or blah, blah. Exactly. You know. I mean, you know. I still, you know, I, I can still sort of um, come out of a relationship blaming the other person for everything that happened. But ultimately, I I have to stop and think. Well, where did I go wrong? Um, but the thing is, um, ultimately, I think the thing is that surrender is often. You know, a word which people use is like, you, you know, you failed or you copped out. When you think of Gandhi, when you think of, you know, um, you know Mandela, when you think of Allah, if you think of Jesus Christ. Ultimate surrender. All of them had to surrender before they became kings or before they became great, you know. And, and I, I had to surrender the fact that I can't control what other people do. Um, and I think, I think, you know, as a, as I said to you before in, in, in conversation in the past, that, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I had to start to believe in the spirit of things and that ultimately um, there's so many coincidences that happen in my life, so many things sort of present themselves to me, which I don't know how it happened. But I b- really believe that there's something that if you live in your integrity and if you live in your truth, things happen for you and you position yourself for success based on the fact that you don't have to attack anyone or do anything revengeful. All you have to do is just keep believing in this, in the spirit of yourself and trying to live within your dignity is as much as that is a struggle, you know, because um, to, to live a tr- purely truthful life is a challenge. But is, can I just stop? Is purely uh, truthful mean you don't embark on a self destructive program? Is, is truly, well, what does it mean? Self respect. Yeah, as yeah. opposed to self-destruct. As opposed to self-destruct. Which Booz does, new wives, yeah. new women, yeah. Yeah. just to shit. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and trying to do the best you can not to bullshit to keep people happy or to have them hear what they want to hear. Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. Well, tell them what you think. Yeah, yeah. But what about the consequences of that, though? Well, you often cop a backlash, but in the end, ultimately, um, everyone knows where they stand. That's my, that's my view. I mean, I often mm. get criticised of being... We call it straight up. I get criticised yeah. for being too yeah. forthright mm. about how I think and feel. Mm. But like I'm at an age, I don't want to sound, but I've always been this way. But I get, but I just don't want people to misunderstand my view. Because mm. because mm. otherwise, I find then dancing around the view. I'm not very good at that. But not only that, it it's waste my time. 
Yeah, yeah. And energy. Mm. And you, you, and that whole energy process. You're talking about energy before. Um, the, and the energy that do you think your energy levels? Apart from the fact you're physically better, do you mm. think your energy levels, your spirit, the energy of your spirit, whatever that is? I'm not talking about you know God. But yeah. The energy of your spirit. Do you think that has been enhanced since you had this realization? Oh, I think my awakening is certainly you know. It, People are attracted to people where they feel, you know, it's, it, you know, the external appearance of someone certainly helps a lot in, yeah, a, yeah. in a superficial society. Initially, just yeah. to say hello. Yeah. But, you know, to also to be a person of substance. So to engage, you want to engage, I want to engage with energy. I want to engage yeah. with honesty. Yeah. Honesty has an energy about it. Absolutely. Your honesty today has an energy for me. Yeah. And and what I'm well, getting it works out of it both is, ways. and I'm yeah. thinking about stuff like yeah. it's yeah. it's giving me moment to think about mm. something, and to me that's mm. important. Yeah. Um. Does your energy your energy came about as a real, realization of who you are after you've gone through the trauma? Yeah. Rock bottom. Mm. Total rock bottom. Mm. You know, waking up under the Christmas tree by your kid yeah. on Christmas Day, that would be that is fucked up. Oh yeah. That is totally fucked totally up. Fucked that, up. That's yeah. fucked up. Um, yeah. Especially a little innocent little kid. Mm. Um. Yeah, that, uh, that would have sent me into a spin for sure. Yeah. Um, I haven't been that bad, but I'm sort of many, many years ago well, have been close to that. Mm. Um, that's fucked up. But, mm. but then you have a realisation once you go through the process, clean yourself up, mm. get out of the fog. Now you have a new energy. What has that energy done for you in your businesses, your various businesses? Because when I first saw you, you said you're, you're killing it now. You're doing it so well, like for a whole lot of reasons. Yeah, and you're not reliant yeah. on any one particular individual, not reliant upon no. the great John Olson. No, I've got a stable of 40 artists. And, yeah. and then they, you know, I mean, my accountant who does many other galleries saying, Tim, whatever you're doing, don't stop doing it because you're doing so much better than everybody else. And, and you know, I'm, I, Every good business has to take an inventory on a regular basis. You know, I connect with my staff. I get weekly reports on sales. I get equal reports on how much is in the bank. I'm on top of things like I never was before. And knowing where you stand obviously knows where you know your hard work's paying off or it isn't. But the thing is, what I notice about my energy as such is that when people come in, they just like being around you. Mm. You know, they just... I mean, what I find interesting is I have people come in and, um, you know, they're looking at paintings and, you know, the conversation segues into different directions or whatever. But ultimately, they just like being with you. And, and you can say, well, look at that picture. Well, you know, what do you – I don't tell them what's in the picture. I say, what do you see in that picture? And then they start talking about the picture and they virtually sell it to themselves and I yeah. haven't done anything. Well, you, would that, yeah. that, well because, yeah. I mean, if, if you did that to me mm. – I would feel as though you just gave me approval or authority mm. not to listen to Tim, but Mark, what you think is important, yeah. tell me what you think. Yeah. And otherwise I would be standing back asking, waiting for Tim to feed me what it is. And I would, I would feel intimidated mm. to say what I've what I think about the painting mm. in your presence, to be honest with you, because mm. I, you know, because you know, you're being exposed to so many things over a long period of time. You know, and you know the artist too. So I would feel intimidated. That, actually, that's quite a good. That's an awakening for an individual, mm. Mm. And, and I might see nothing in the painting, so I might yeah. not like it. Well, what I love about my business is not only because it provides incomes for young artists who 
And what makes me more happy than any of the money is to see them starting to buy studios and they buy houses and they have families and they go and paint in Paris or they go and live in Spain. But the other thing is, is noticing my clients. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Speaking about long-term clients, how they've changed as people from collecting art and by learning about their own taste and their own choices, what inspires them, what turns them on, what makes them think, has made them grow as people as well vicariously through the idea of collecting art, which is an extension of their personality. So they've learnt about themselves in the process of making choices, visual choices, that aren't just visual choices, they're emotional choices as well. And the best way to allow someone to grow that way is to get them to express themselves, give them, open up the gates for them to say, why do you like it? And of course I come you, in. Someone like you gives yeah. me permission. Yeah. I don't know if you realise how powerful that is. Yeah. You know, like if it was one of the people in my office here mm. said, gave me permission to comment on a piece of art, it's not as, it doesn't have the same effect on me as Tim Olson giving me permission. And if it was Tim Olson when he was 20, nah. Tim mm. Olson when he was 30, nah. But Tim Olson at 60, having gone through all the shit you've gone through mm. and your own awakening and your change and your realisations and and the life, I mean, mate, this life of yours, which is written about in your book, the you know, son, of the, son of the Brush, mm. um, is you said it before, your dad gave you colour, the book's full of colour, and your dad, mum gave you depth, and it's full of depth. It's like a book of depth and colour. Mm. Full of stories, yeah. you know, like uh, it's pretty cool. Um, so when Tim Olsen gives someone permission to say what they think, it's quite a powerful thing. It's well, the thing very is, powerful. The thing is I learned from other people as well because they're seeing something I can't see, even though I'm meant to be the art expert. Let's just have a little look at this for a second now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Art. Mm. Why the fuck is it so – What? I know it's, there's only one. Why is you know, art important? Why is it expensive? Why is it important? Why do people keep investing in it? I'm one of them, but like, why do we have people who collect? What mm. what is collectible? What mm. makes something collectible? Mm. Tell just help me out here. Look, um, Mark, you know, where mates? Tell me the truth. I'll, I can't. I can't do anything but tell you from straight from the heart, from experience that when we look through history, what else have we got to, to show for civilizations? You know, you being a man you know, with a Hellenic background, I mean, the Greeks 
probably one of the most important civilizations of, you know, all time. Of all time. I mean, there are the in Egypt, certain aspects anyway. In certain, there were the Romans and there were the Egyptians, whatever. But the Greeks, when it came to philosophy and mythology, were hands down when it came to came to understanding the human condition. Now, great art should talk about the human condition. Even a landscape, looking at a landscape, should be about um, not so much how beautiful the landscape is, but our relationship to nature is why a landscape's important. But with all forms of art, you know, once upon a time, you know, art was only something that was a privilege given to people that would paint for the court or for the Vatican, you know, or mm. for the church. The modern art began when an artist could paint something and talk about their spiritual interaction or their epiphany with nature or their epiphany with, with society in a way, but it has to have something or a substance that's to do with some form of truth to do with civilization. And, and I still think that's very important today, that, that the best art often um, is to do with some aspect of how we identify with it as saying, oh, yeah, I get that because I see that. And what they're saying is actually quite an, a pertinent issue or a pertinent truth or a beauty that I understand to be authentic today. And um, one of the biggest problems with the art world today is that we it's now since Charles Saatchi got involved with artists like Damien Hirst and Banksy and all that kind of thing. The more uh, it's, it's more, stylized modern artists. Yeah, conceptual Banksy, art. For concept, yeah, there's a lot of crap out there which yeah. is based on branding and marketing. And there are a lot of wealthy people out there who've got no fucking idea. Hmm. But they're told that's worth a million bucks and they go, I'll, I'll take one. Yep. And that's the sad thing about the art world that I don't like today. Like, is that sustainable though? That that that, that well, look, process. I think, like the real estate market, there's ultimately the bubbles. There's a bubble. There, there are there are storage facilities in Switzerland at airports where people basically store their art that they've inv invested in to never hang it or look at it, but they see it as as good as owning gold bars, um, because the the art world has become so commodified, and it, and collectibles, and it's all about rarity. And this is where we sort of tip into the new realm of NFTs, mm. where you're buying into the instead of buying a coin, you're actually buying a slice of copyright, as such. And but you know what makes a successful one, or what makes one a failure? Um, there are just so many, so many different variants in regard to what's good and bad. Well, what are you doing with NFT? I mean, like, oh. what are you going to do in terms of this digital art world? And the NFTs well, that are attached to it. I mean, what, what's... Well, getting back to the beginning of our conversation, Mark, we talked about the idea of the artisan. Yep. You know, I'm not... I have to admit that I'm not the most fashionable gallery in Australia. You mean currently? Currently. Yeah. What's that mean, fashionable? Well, you don't have the fashionable artist. Well, I'm not where the... You know, I'm not, you know, cool, you know. Well, you were cool. Well, why? why but, what do you mean? No, I, I'm still... I'm still a very attractive business. You're, but you're you mean you're not representing I'm not, the cool I'm not, artists? I'm not avant-garde is what I'm trying to say. Right, okay. Yeah, okay. okay. And I don't want to be. I don't care. I, I grew up with a responsibility through the education I got to look after painters, sculptors and drawers and good photographers. And that's my knitting. That's what I know. I can tell a good one from a bad one. And I don't want to go off into those other realms of video art or, you know, you know, my, my godfather was a man called Robert Hughes who wrote The Fatal yep. Shore, but one of the great art critics of the, he wrote for the New York Times. 
you know, he said that even a tea bag behind Perspex loses its flavour after a while, <laughs> you know. And getting back to you talking about coming back to your own collection and still seeing more, that is successful art. You know, too much conceptual art is about, you know, it's all very well to, you know, to, to be able to fart through a keyhole, but do you want to come back and see it? see it again or, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've got to have art that, that, that is sustainable intellectually. Well, and, like, yeah. let's look at those NFTs. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, I mean, if you go on to some of the um, marketplaces, mm. it's just, it blows your head. Like, yeah. I mean, what the fuck? I mean, some stuff's worth nothing. Some stuff's worth ridiculous amounts of money. Mm. If you look at, um, I mean, I follow um, Beeple Crap um, mm. and some of his digital art's interesting. Yeah. How would, how would, like if if you were going to buy something, some digital art, um, NFT, what what would you be looking for then? Well, it's it's a it's a whole new realm by which um, people are. It's become so ubiquitous. It's there's just so much out yeah. there now. How do you tell? I can't pick. You can't pick. Yeah. And so there's a lot of graffiti art. There's a lot of you know Banksy's and and. Uh, Listers and you know people like that who are doing things that are to do with the cool kids, you know the young investors, the, the you know the people that end up being you know rich tech kids who will spend a few million on something that they think is a cool idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're not investing; they're just having a punt. They're having a punt, you know. And um, and I think I think the thing is that you know there's a, there's a wonderful story about two two Jewish men who grew up uh, who lived by the sea and one found a rock one day and said to the other, I found the most beautiful rock. What do you think of it? He says, oh, it's fantastic. Can I, you know, can I buy it from you? He goes, oh, no, no, I couldn't possibly sell it to you. Three weeks later, he goes, he says, oh, can I buy that rock for you? He said, okay, if you really want the rock, you can have it. Anyway, these guys kept buying the rock back from each other for many years. Eventually one of them went, to the, went back to the one who originally found it and said, I want to buy that rock back now that we've both owned it several times. He said, I can't sell it to you. And he said, why? He said, because I sold it to someone else. And he says, well, why did you do that? We were doing such good business. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, we're, we're just propping each other up. We're propping each other up. Which is the definition yeah. of a bubble. Absolutely. And, yeah. and so do you think there's a bubble coming in the NFT market for digital art? Well, I, I still think it's very new. Yep. Um, it, it, it'll, it, it gets back to rarity. Yeah. And- I the the direction I'm going is more to do with serious artists, collectible artists. Um, you know, I have connections with you know some of the greatest to the estates of some of the greatest artists that ever lived in Australia. I have connections to international artists. Um, Will you know, John ever do one piece of digital art? We're working on a piece of John's at the moment. Yep. I'm, I'm working with Heckler, a production company at the moment, who. They did you know, the Matrix and what have you, and, and I'm working with a guy, David Nobay, who used to be with Saatchi's and worked with uh, David Drager in New York. And, oh, David, yeah. Yeah, and um, he's a brilliant creative. So the three of us are a great team. David runs the advertising agency. He right? runs the yeah. advertising agency, it's, yeah. Um, yeah. Hal Drager's brother. Um, yeah, Marcus Drager's brother, Hal yeah. Drager's yeah, kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hal used to be a client of mine. Oh, Hal in the, was, yeah. in the law firm. We won't go back. 40 years. Well, Black, we used to call him Black Harry. Yeah. Because you know, yeah, he used to yeah. run Perisher. And I remember his, yeah. I remember the kids. I remember the two boys yeah. just coming to, into our office in the in Macquarie Street um, mm. quite often. They were just kids in those days. Um, yeah. And uh, now Marcus, I think, is a stockbroker and, and um, David's over in New York. Yeah. Well, Ari, his son, is is now in uh, basically, uh, he went, went from law 
to being um uh, what do you call it um a fund a fund manager. He's now he's now selling Sydney Airport for the second time. <laughs> and Ari's Ari's one of my best friends. We were all all those Droger boys were at Kings Shit. with me. Oh, I'm the godfather to his son. He's a makes godfather. Makes me feel really ancient. Yeah. Um, I remember I was in my twenties when they used to come into our office. Um, yeah. So, so you you're working on with all those people in relation to something that John might produce or something. Yeah, you're we're, gonna we're, take we're, we're working on something at the moment. Um, you know, I can't really go into detail no, about it because yeah. it's it's it's. Um, but you, you so rare. But but again, you would say. Yeah. Well, tell me if I'm right. It all comes down to rarity at the end of the day. Yes, and and there's um, there's only so many shares. You know, it's like it's like, you know, it's, it's basically a float, mm. and there are only so many shares. Mm. And you're dealing with the best artists. Yeah. And you know that they're going to be interesting for a long time. Yeah. You've got to be with things that are going to be interesting for a long time. Getting back to everything about what I do with the, the artists I represent and what ends up with people's collections where they still find it interesting 20 years later. It's got to be an NFT that's going to sustain its its level of, of um, you know, fascination and, and interest. Yeah. And, mm. and uh, indulgence for the person who owns it. Absolutely, we all indulge ourselves. Oh, by the way, I, I need to ask you. I, I've been asked you for ages. Yeah. Um, I once uh, many years ago, I bought from you a, a Sonia Kruger, and uh, the Australian Art Gallery. Sonia Kruger is a television. Not Sonia Kruger. Uh, Martin Imder. No, not Martin. It was Kruger. Something Kruger. Oh, Elizabeth Kruger. Elizabeth Kruger. I'm sorry. That's right. Yes. Um, and yeah. she painted uh, Wisteria. That's for right. Me, yeah. For you and I bought from you. Yeah. And um, I've I've lent it to the Australian Art Gallery a few times, but um. I need to get something fixed on it. Um, there's a, a bird crapped on it. Um, well, that's good luck. Yeah, it is good luck. But I don't know how the fuck the bird got in there. We got in my house and crapped on it. And of all things. Um, so when it comes to something like that, like a piece of art, and, mm. you know, we look at beautiful old antique furnitures, which, you know, like has patina. Mm. What, yeah. is, what is the position when a piece of art has been lived in? Or lived on in this case by probably in my case down there at Camp Cove is probably a parakeet well, or one of those uh, rosellas or whatever that you know those birds that are always hanging around the trees are they chirping all the time it got in my house yeah somehow yeah and w- what what is the position of something like that is, well, it, is it fucked up no good forever well it's easy to clean bird shit up yeah no but the bird shit actually got into the paint yeah um what do you think well there are good restorers that can fix it. Um, but what it, I understand, if, if, you sma- if you smash a porcelain Chinese pot and you have to get it glued back together, it's lost its, a lot of its value. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's lost the integrity of its form. Yeah. Um, that is a problem depending on how bad the damage is. What's more important these days than anything is provenance. And this is why online auctions and- well, it's always been mine. Yeah. Yes. I got it from you and well, you got it from her. If you were to sell your art collection mm-hmm. and- Say Sotheby's came along and said, "Hey, Mark, we're going to sell your collection for you." They would do a catalogue and they call it the Mark Boris Collection. Yep. Now that would be worth a shitload more than if you just off- secretly offloaded these things in, right. in, into. That's because your provenance, um, as a respected person, um, as a as a discerning person, means a lot, and that's something that carries on through the history of that artwork. That's very interesting. So mm. my my personality, to some extent, uh overlays the collection. A man a man who's or anyone who's known to make wise choices and has objects that are part of their wise choices has value. That's interesting. Yeah. 
You know, it's funny. Mm. I was I was just thinking when you were telling me that. I was thinking about. Um, there was a. Uh, I have a. a I can't remember. Is it Clement Meadmore? Clement Meadmore, yeah, a sculptor. I have one of his sculptures, and I have mm. a uh, another one. A guy. Uh, I just can't think of his name, but he 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 gets all these bits of metal and puts them like he makes unusual shapes. And uh, I remember James walked in. My, James Packer walked in my house once, mm. and. Um, uh, he commented on it straight away, um, which is like no one's ever commented before because no one really would have known who it was by. It, it, it's all made. It's all made. Clipple, Clipple, Robert yeah. Clipple. Cl- Clipple, I have a Clipple too. Yeah, yeah. And I bought those from an estate. Yes, uh, there was an auction. From, yes, and uh, if you remember Michael from Wallara, right? Michael, the art dealer from Wallara, uh, is it Michael? He was up there in uh, my car. Yes. Yep, yep. He he got them for me. Mm-hmm. He put it to me. He comes mm-hmm. with there's a big collection, mm-hmm. and he sold me the the owners. His his sons. Yeah. He's it was the it was the collection the collector who he sold to me as opposed because I didn't know who Clement Meadmore was other than I knew there was one out at the art gallery yeah, yeah. and the Clipple I knew I, I didn't know but I sort of knew a little bit about Clipple because I'd mm-hmm. had a book on it mm-hmm. but he didn't sell me Clipple and he didn't sell me Clement Meadmore he just went to the auction and bid for me but he sold me the collector. He said, "This is a collection from a late an estate of blah." Mm. Say the name, mm. and that's what I I bought that. Yeah, like you yeah. just said. Yeah, yeah, because it gave it more substance. It sort of mm. made me think. Well, it gave me an endorsement. It said, "Well, that dude was a smart old dude." Yeah, and I liked him. It was a bloke, and mm. uh, if it's good enough for him, it's it's okay for me because I had no fucking idea. Yeah, uh, but I was approached by Michael Carr to do it. Mm-hmm. So Michael sort of. You know, talk me into it. Mm. Um, and I still have my, I look at them every night. And, and I sometimes I look at it and I think, that's just a couple of bits of fucking metal uh, welded together there. Um, not so much the, the clipper, but the Meadmore is. I mean, it's that, that, yeah. uh, that big bits of steel, you know, yeah. or a, a bit rusty even. Yeah, but Mark, you're a mathematician underneath. Mm. And I love the shape. And that's the, there's a thing called semiotics, which is to do with how all us human beings, even though we speak different languages, we all respond in the same way to certain things or with a smile or a cry or a facial expression or a body language, whatever. When it comes to certain things in our mind and then the brain, you know, when we talk about neuroplasticity and how our brains are wired to understand certain things and not understand certain things and how we can change that. Your neuroplasticity through understanding mathematics has helped you to understand that sculpture subconsciously without you even knowing it. I look at it, but I don't yeah. think about it. I just, I just look at it. It's because it's in the structure of it is is appear, somehow makes sense to you and your subconscious. Yeah, I could probably pretty even yeah. like pretty much even draw it. Yeah. I, yeah. I I I don't know whether this, is it is because we're getting older and we got money and you know we can do these things when we're young we didn't really appreciate it. Mm. But what what is that? As we get older, we're more thoughtful about these things and we sort of tend to stop and have a look. Is that something you've experienced with your clients? Yeah, um, I think as some people call it mellowing, but I, I think I think we come to accept that this is the way we are. And um, is there a concept of permanence, uh, Tim? Like, uh, you know, like art is permanent. We will die, but the art will out outlive us. Outlive us, yeah. There will. The, the th- these are things that we could call, in a sense, our personal legacy. You know, what are we leaving behind that's going to help someone else? or basically add value to, to what we did with our own lives. And it's not just about writing a book. It's about things that we did, whether it be for 
um, you helping people to buy their first home, mm -hmm. um, what your children learnt from you, all sorts of things. These are Mark Burris's legacies, which aren't just to do with what obviously what Mark Burris did, but all the different things that interest you and you're doing it to your best ability with, so your, it, with your authenticity. So when it comes to, say, John, for example, is it because mm. um, John would go out into the bush and, and in his way, his style of painting, mm. would paint something that we probably would never ever experience? Me as an individual well, living in Sydney, what, what yeah. is the special about well, that? The thing, the thing about my father's work is and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people for most of their lives could never understand John's work. You know, they couldn't understand why. They go, oh, geez, you know, I can't, you know. Um, I never I never forget once. I love John Laws and my father, John Laws is a friend of my father's, but I remember John Laws, who always calls a spade a spade, said to me once, is your father still painting those pictures I don't understand? <laughs> and I said to him, well, are you still doing that radio show he doesn't listen to? <laughs> but, you <Good> know. <laughs> but, you know, John had a good laugh and he's got a good sense of humour. Um, but, you know, the whole thing is that um, my father's work is about memory. It's about the nuance. It's about the sentiment. It's about the nostalgia. And so when he paints a landscape, he, he's, he, he, you know, Edmund Capon, who was a director of the, yep. of, you know, he said, he he said John Olson was one of the most evocative painters of, of the 20th century. But what does that mean? What it means is that he's, a, he's basically flown above the landscape and he's looked at, so Australia's so flat. You don't get much landscape just looking at a horizon. Mm. You know, Fred Williams did very well with just looking at the horizon, but Dad got it above the landscape and almost turned it into a sexual experience. You know, looking over the landscape like a woman's body. You know, the the rivers almost being like an umbilical cord. He changed the vastness and this, and, and brought in the the essence of what he learned from Zen Buddhism, the idea of space, positive and negative spaces. But but essentially, to go above Australia. You get a much better feeling for the, the tonality, the color, and the feel of the landscape. And it's not about trying to capture it realistically, like a photograph. It's about how how do how do I remember that day, and how do I remember that light, and how do I remember what that landscape looked like that day. And 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 it's the same with when he does paintings based on the paella. You know, yep. It's not about the actual paella that he's looking at and taking. You know, it's about that memory of that day. When we're sitting, you know, under the thatch and crockery by the Mediterranean, and we're in that little restaurant, and they came out with a little paella, and we drank the day. Now that's an inspiration for a painting, that creates a feeling, and his work's about that. And it's, and, you know, people say to me, "Was he pissed when he painted that?" And I said, "No, he was just having a fond memory." And the lucidity of it is to do with the, the lyricism and like. The remembering things. That's the wonderful thing about the human brain. It's why we don't top ourselves is because we have an ability to get rid of the negative and wake up each day knowing that the positive is what's going to move us forward for that day. And it's the same with great art. It's about uh, great art is about the, 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 the essence of the nourishment, not just painting food, but the, how does a painting nourish you to make you feel good about what the subject is? But also good about yourself by the fact that it it brings back your own sense of sentiment. Do you think all those years as a young boy mm. and a young man being involved in the art world, but involved, being involved with artists, but experiencing famous artists coming to your home, people all do you think you live that nourishment? You you actually that that all nourished you. Do you think that was there also to save you when you had your crisis? That 
constant 50 years of nourishment. Yeah. Yeah. Saved well, you? Well, I, I, I realised that I had a lot to give. But you, that, that's because you absorbed all this stuff. Yeah, but I couldn't see it. You know, I, I, I was, I was too, um, I was too caught up with being Tim Olson, or comparing yourself to John and comparing Olson. myself to John Olson. I was too. It was really, really give me the shits because I'd meet people like, oh, you how you know, they wouldn't say how are you, Tim. They say, oh, how's your father? You know, mm. yeah. <laughs> and, and I'd say, well, I'm well as he's he's great, but I'm also well if you're interested. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything was always in terms of him. And I still, because he's such an interesting person, you know, people still want to hear about him before they want to hear about me. And well, he's famous. Yeah. I think yeah, you're interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, I, and I think you're, particularly now, you weren't that interesting when you're drinking all the time. No. But as interesting as you are now. Because right now I'm getting a lot of reflection, yeah. you know, like a deep reflection. Mm. And, uh, and also you've got all the stories about John Olsen. You've got all the stories about... Tim, uh, all the people who visited your ho your home, you know, famous mm. artists, mm. famous people, interesting mm. people that uh, you know might have commissioned something or other. Mm. You've got all the stories. You're you're the dude who's been there running the journal. You might not have written it down. You have now written it down, but mm. you weren't writing it down. But it's in your memory. Yeah. And just like your old man, you know, has an experience. Mm. Blah blah, goes back and paints it. You you've put in your book. You've painted them all in your book, in stories. Mm. Mm. There's your there's your uh, piece of artwork there, right there. Yeah, well, it's for your feelings. Well, this is this is sort of segueing into what um, everyone has to realise that all of us are creative. Mm. Anyone who runs a successful business, anyone who is a you know is a bread artisan and makes sourdough, is a creative person. Everybody is creative. They just don't identify with the word creative. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a word you use in your book, you know, in regard to that lateral thinking of, yeah. you know, where. Um, a divergent a, thinking. A divergent thinking. Yeah. Divergent thinking is just another great word for creativity. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a process of how we think compared mm. to being convergent. When we're thinking, sitting there comparing ourselves to everybody else, we're, math we're doing a mathematical um relationship between us and someone else so therefore we con are converging and we're going to always come out with one answer when you're divergent you actually drop all that and you think about all the possibilities and divergence is about all the possibilities and mm. divergent thinking is about all the possibilities creating something from all the possibilities mm. and 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 what's interesting to me like and you know, we sort of long way around it but like it seems to me that um i'm looking at your piece of artwork, The Son of the Brush, um, being, as I said earlier, all the depth and colour and light and movement that you got from your whole life, including your parents, but your mm -hmm. whole life, everything, all the things that came through to you through your life, you put it all into one piece of work here. It's mm -hmm. a, it is a piece of art in that respect. Oh, thank you. And, uh, and, and I think that's really important. I mean, it, I mean, obviously it was a therapeutic thing for you and all that other stuff, blah, 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 and, you know, it, and it's going to be a bestseller and it's going to resonate with lots of people. Um, but but it is that, cathartic to write a book. You've it, done it. Yeah, well, yeah. you've done it too. Well, yeah, but, yeah, but not like this. This is, this yeah. is different. Mine, look, I'll be honest with my one. My, my one was to help people. I, I just wrote my book to share my experience with other people because that might help them through their business. Mm. 
surviving. But both our books are similar in the fact that we use simple language. Well, I, I can only write simple language. Um, yeah, that's the only way. I, I mean, I'm just yeah. right the way I think. But yeah. Uh, but but you, yours is more than that. Um, mm. To be honest with you, yours, yours as I said, is full of colour and depth. Mm. Which is interesting. You mentioned your father gave you colour, mother gave you depth. That's sort of really interesting to me. And uh, mm. we all end up, and you said your father's a little boy. I think we're all still little boys, and um, we're the little boys and girls are reflecting in a more mature way about our, ourselves as a boy or a girl. And that's mm. that's just the way I feel. Yeah. And all the, and we're and the combination of all the experiences, which basically the feelings we've had about the experiences that have been put in front of us, good or bad. You know, they're all good. They're either good or bad, or you know, very rarely they somewhere in between. Mm. I, I, in terms of you being a teacher, and you mentioned you think, you know, you probably had a realization that you are a teacher. And I have to say, as a client, you definitely did teach me, and I'm still learning from, not from you, but from what you did for me. As I said, I and I see different things and the stuff oh, you put in my oh, house. I'm touched. Thank you. Mm. But as a teacher, you have a responsibility, mm. um, and I know, I know because I did this with you, young artists, you are a, a big promoter of young artists. I remember you and I at one stage they had a little residency thing going on up at my That's farm. That's right, yeah, with your little um, Buddhist. Yeah, uh, Buddhist gumper at the top there. And uh, we used to put them in there, and young artists come out of the art school and you, yeah. you'd identify them. we put them there and they – we had some older artists too um, and they used to – the deal was they could um, build a – what do you call it? Portfolio of artwork. They do it, spend six, eight weeks a there. Collection and give collection. you and, and I would take one. They paid you an art and they paid me. You know? Correct. I'd yeah, get yeah, one piece yeah. and and, uh, one you piece. Get, and then you would display yeah. the stuff. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and mm. that, that's a. Uh, do you, and I remember I said you were going to open up a, a, a gallery in Lismore. Did you? Uh, did you open a gallery in Lismore? <laughs> I was thinking of. Um, well, something well, happened in Lismore. Oh, what? You did. You opened a gallery in Lismore. Something. Or you no, had, I, I, I was part of an exhibition that was on at the Lismore Regional Gallery. Right. And um, but I was thinking of, you know, getting a place at Byron and having a little gallery there, whatever. But I ended up doing New York instead. Right. Okay. Well, that's <laughs> slightly different. And but the, the Northern yeah. Rivers in New South Wales is uh, yeah. quite a lot of great artists come from around that area. Yes. I don't know what it is, but there's some fantastic artists up there. Yeah, there whatever are. Whatever happened to that girl McDonald? Whatever, because you know what happened. I have to. Tell you, she. What was her name? What was her first? Zoe. Name? Zoe. Yeah. So she she was a re in residence at my place. Yeah. And then yeah. um. My uh, my one of my managers lived there, fancied her, and uh, tried his best, but failed miserably. And then uh, uh, one day, I rang up a guy up there used to prank cows, whose name also was McDonald. Angus McDonald. Angus, and I said, "Mate, can you come to my property and maybe you paint my favourite cow?" My sons went to the Royal Easter Show. My oldest son went to the Royal Easter Show, and we got a cattle stud there. And he went to a, a, a Brahma stud, and he went to the Royal Easter Show, and he bought the the, the I don't know ten month old. Uh, bull from the Royal Institute, the one one his division, and brought it up to the farm and called it uh, Sirloin, and um, mm. and and uh, and I want to get a painting of him. So mm. I got Angus to come up, and then Angus, when he was at my farm, met the young lady McDonald's. So, yeah, Zoe. yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes they got married. No, they didn't get married, but they had a long relationship. Did they? Okay. Mm. So she's still there, they together? We all went to Ski Arthos together once. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Are they still married? No, uh, no. No, all together, I mean? No, no, no. no, no. no so they, she live up in the Northern Rivers? Um, she's about somewhere, but she's- Still painting? She's still painting and her work's getting better and better, yeah. And, and he stopped yeah. painting, uh, I think he, he might have stopped painting cows or something and he started painting something else. But 
Yeah. How, how do these people go in later life? She must be like early, he's in her 40s or 50s maybe now, I don't know, but 40s at least. Mm. Where do these young people end up that you sort of take on yeah, as apprentices, yeah. so to speak? It's it's really interesting you should bring this up because, um, you know, we call it, some people call it a midlife crisis. Um, in the art world, we call it mid-career. And um, I think there's a certain point in life, and I certainly found that, um, you know, at, at a very crucial point in my life where I woke up one day and I thought I've got a successful business, I've got a beautiful house at the swimming pool, I've got a, a lovely wife, I've got a son. Why am I still unhappy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, why am I still unhappy? Because I was, I, I was in a, you know, uh, in a spiritual malady, or malady, I should say. And um, the same thing happens with artists where they go, okay, I'm, I've run out of ideas. What can I do to come up with something that people, you know, I can't keep painting burning ropes for the rest of my life. How do I stay example. relevant? How do I stay relevant? Tim Story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have that burning uh, yeah. robot. <laughs> yeah, my father calls it, you know, how do I come up with a new circus animal, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that people want to turn up to the circus for? Um, one of the things that changed my father's life was when he was in my, lived in Mallorca and he became friends with um, Robert Graves, mm-hmm. who was a great historian on Greek and yep. Roman history. I know. I've, yep. I've actually got one yeah. of I've got The Odyssey written by Robert Graves. So the, yes. the, the, he interpreted the yeah. old Greek language and put it into the yeah. poetry of The Odyssey, and I've read it. Yeah. I mean, this is a really good point. He's a very serious dude. He I was love a very him. Se- yeah, and and he loved women too, like my father did. And well, there's nothing wrong with that. And my father was good at pulling the chicks. He was they, he was only a young man. He started working in this little restaurant in Daya, where where Richard Branson built La Residencia. Mm-hmm. But my father lived there in the fifties and befriended Robert Graves because Dad was good at getting the chicks up to Robert Graves' house up on the hill there. And they became very close friends, and you know, there was a lot of bacchanalia and you know all sorts of debauchery that went on. That and, and but a great Greek historian, a great, great Greek, incredible man, yep. brilliant mind. But he said something to my father that changed his life: read avidly, embrace poetry, and you will never run out of ideas. You can paint, you can paint pretty pictures all your life, but unless you feed your mind, you will you will come to a dead end. And from that point on, you know, Dad, Dad went to St. Joseph's. He, he grew up in, in Newcastle, as I said before. He went to a school that was completely artless. But he, he just started reading, reading a lot and started to understand that, that, that the essence of poetry was metaphor. And to, to be able to look at the landscape and see the metaphor on the landscape or, and to, under, to sort of apply the poetry. He did the big painting in the opera house called yep. Five Bells, which is based on a poem by Kenneth Slesser about a bloke that gets pissed and falls over the side of a ferry. And as he's sinking to the bottom of the, of the harbour, he's actually finding his way to heaven. So there's sort of this metaphor. It's like a Greek tragedy yeah, playing totally. out in Sydney Harbour. So they're the things that sustained my father to be a, a master. And artists get to that point in their life where they can't keep painting bulls or cows every day. They need to come up with an idea. And that's where feeding your mind, writing, reading, having some sort of intellectual life aside of what you do um, is part of nourishing the future. As a teacher Mm. then, Mm. do you then guide your artists along that odyssey? Do you then say, do you sort of nudge them or do you tell them or do you 
suggest what do you do or do you not do anything look, at all? Look, it's, it's a really tough business sometimes because I've had to let artists go. And I said, look, you know, um, you know, you know the, you, your work is just not evolving. You know, um, our, our clients aren't responding to them. Um, I think maybe we should have a sabbatical and I think you need to go back to the studio and try and, and it's really tough to say something like that because to criticise someone art, someone's artist to criticise their huh. soul, um, you know, you have to somehow lead them in a direction by which they can go back and do some soul searching. But is that a, do you feel philosophically obliged? Do you, do you feel that there's an obligation? Uh, I, How far do you go? I, I don't feel, I, I, look, I care. I care, you know. Um, and I, look, I have a res, not just a responsibility to the artist, but I've got a responsibility to everybody that's invested in their art before. You know, yeah. there's nothing worse than when someone comes back and says, I bought that picture from me. Where are they? What happened to them? Yeah, yeah totally. And they say, oh, well, they topped themselves. Or, yeah, you know, yeah, they, yeah. You oh, know, they become an investment banker. They're an investment banker, <laughs> exactly. I feel as I've let my client down because yeah. I sold them the picture on the basis that this was not just something they loved but also had an investment aspect yeah. to it. So an emerging yeah. person. An emerging person, yeah. So because like, it's sort of quite interesting um, the where your responsibility starts and ends. I mean, a lot of the art dealers is just a transaction. Yeah. It's just transactional, and I've dealt yeah, with real them. estate. Yeah, yeah. just trans. You, you buy yeah. this, and I'm, I tend to probably pay overs, and you know what I mean. You get a, you can get a bad feeling. Yeah, but there are well, the only one I've experienced who's not that way is you. And but there are people who are like you who think like you. It's not so much of an obligation, but it's an ongoing thing. Like it's an ongoing relationship. And funnily enough, that the art that I have from you has an ongoing, I have an ongoing relationship with it. The other stuff, a lot of the other stuff where I've just, it's just been a transaction. Mm. Well, I have a Tim story. I have the burning logs, which I bought through, uh, what's his name in uh, Hargrave Street? Uh, oh, Dennis Seville. Dennis, yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's a long checkered history about this particular painting, but it's very mm. big. And uh, and it just sort of sits there and I, I don't, I mean, I should appreciate it. <laughs> it's probably worth a bit, but I don't. And because I don't really have a, is Dennis still around? Uh, Dennis is retired now, yeah, but he's but still I, around. Yeah. I don't have a relationship with him. I never had a relationship. It's sort of very yeah. interesting that you have relationships with your art, with your artist, with your client, and that probably goes back to the fact that you got born and bred into this stuff. And you have you have a relationship for life with this, no matter what, mm. whatever way you look at it. Mm. There is no choice for no. you. No, There's zero choice. No, I mean it's it's you have to embrace it. Before you're sort of fighting against it, embracing it, fight, before you had your realization period, yeah. it was back and forth. Yeah. Um, it's just awareness. Um, and that um, I, I believe in, I really try to sustain perpetuity. Mm. You know, that things should have a lifetime that goes beyond. And if an artist gets stuck, I feel enormously responsible to try and see what I can do. To free them up again, and um, the, you know there are many reasons why artists get stuck. It could be a divorce. It could be all sorts of, or you know, simply running out of ideas. Are artists selfish? Oh shit! Yeah, it comes with it comes with the territory. But you're yeah. not. So why it, did you have a? Did you realize that one of your great assets is generosity and not selfish, as opposed to being a raconteur? <laughs> well, my father's always been a very generous man. You know, he's always giving things away. Um, 
Well, you, you, he gave me that, uh, yeah. that poem, that uh, print. I don't even know what it is. I can't remember now, but it's got a poem written on there about what's yeah. his value about the sea or something. Yeah. He, gave, he, through you, gave that to me. Yeah. I keep having to buy more berries for him because he keeps giving him to the butcher or the greengrocer. <laughs> <laughs> is he still getting around? He gets around yeah, okay. Yeah, he gets around. Yeah, on his yeah, walk, yeah. he's still got to walk. But, you know, Mark, it's like what you, in your book, you talk about the village. Yeah. You know, and my father finds more wisdom in talking to a hardworking ordinary person than someone who's supposedly clever and a captain of industry. Mm. You know, my father, living in Europe, living in Spain in the 60s, he really learned about people who have lived hard and had it tough. But generally, they're more beautiful people than those that are just rich. Yeah, I agree. And, with that. The, and the value of simple, you know, that, that, that a simple life has more wisdom in it than, a, than one that looks clever. It definitely yeah. has, mm. as we get older, it has a mm. lot of attraction. I was talking mm. to a, a friend of mine, you would know him, he's an East Suburbs guy, mm. extremely ex- successful guy mm. as a property developer. I saw him yesterday and uh, he was telling me that he was, took his family down. He was on the phone, asked me to help me up something. He's then in Tasmania. And I said, Oh, where is it? Tommy, we're staying. He said, We're just renting with my family, wife, kids, and stuff like that, grandkids, a two little simple houses. Now, this guy's, you know, he's so rich, he could buy Texas. And like, he's that rich. And, uh, and I said, Mate, how is it like uh, living in these little simple places down the end of Tasmania? He said, mm. Fuck, Mark. He said, doesn't matter how much money I got. I said, I can't. He said, I can never repeat this. Mm. He said, this is so easy. It's so simple. There's nothing to worry about. Don't have to worry about something getting stolen. Like, there's mm. nothing. I don't have to put a security system up. I don't have to drive through, a, you know, security guards, take him into my house, whatever. Mm. Um, he said, it's so good. Mm. And it's the simple life. Uh, yeah. I, I think at the end of the day, that's my dad's like that. My old man lives, he's got a nice house. There's most, but he just lives the ultimate simple life. He's 88. Healthy mm. as anything, mm. lives a fantastic, simple life. Nothing complicated in his life. Um, nothing, zero. Mm. I just wanted to say to you something, uh, Tim, and we'll bring it to an end in a second. I've taken a lot of your time, but, and I don't know where this came from, but when I was 25, um, I was working in a law firm, 26 it was, and uh, my young brother just finished his law degree. So I got him a job at the same firm that I was at. And um, and it was a place called Simon Zabowski. You may know David Zabowski. Yes, you know David, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And David was a senior partner. Like, you know, he was a few, 10, 15 years older than me and, and I mm. really looked up to him. And I went to his house. He had this house in um, at the time in Hobson Avenue and uh, he had like all these famous artists up there and he took me around the house, showed me these different artists. And I had no art. And, I, and, uh, and I, somehow I looked up an auction. Don't know why. There was an auction on in um, down near the rocks. There was an mm. auction house there. And I took my young brother, who was at the time 20, 22, or 22, just finished his law degree. And we went into this auction and they gave you paddles. And I decided to buy some art, paintings. Why the fuck I did it, I don't know. Mm. And I bought my very first piece of art was a, and I still have it, was a William Lister Lister. Ah, good artist. And why I chose him, I can't tell you. But I mm. really loved the frame on it. it was beautiful. I mm. thought the frame was beautiful in those days. Everything was gold framed, you know, like. And uh, I met Chris Day. Is it Christopher Day? Yeah, Chris Day. Yeah, and yeah. Chris was an old school 
car dealer. He had a lot of those sort of things. Traditional he, yeah. car dealer, yeah. He then sold me another Lister Lister. Yeah. Then I bought another one. I bought, And I, I have like six Lister Listers, yeah. which are the very – and they didn't cost – I think I paid $3,000 for it, which was probably a lot of money back 40 years ago. But um, mm. And I've got a few of these now, like uh, – and I a, a client of mine gave me one when I was going through his house in Gidlingala Road, which he was a very rich client when I was mm. in the law firm and he realised I had something, he gave me one, just literally gave me one. Mm. Um, and uh, and I have such a fondness and affection affection for these paintings, even through all various divorces and things like that, I always kept those no mm. matter what. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, the painting I had from your dad, it went to one of my ex-wives. She took it. <laughs> But I always insist. We'll have to make up for it, Mark. Thank you. You're a bit expensive for me now. <laughs> no, no, we'll do a very good we'll deal. We'll do a good deal. But, 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 but I never let these go because I have a massive emotional, and I'm not an emotional dude, but I have a massive emotional attachment to them as being my first indulgence in my whole life. And I'm not an indulgence sort of person, but it's the first time I ever indulge myself in something outside of a car or a hard asset, if you know what I mean. And uh, I have them in my uh, certain part of my house, all in one room, and I, I look at them every single night of my life. Mm. And I, I, I actually uh, consciously look at them and I still see new things in them. Well, you're calling it indulgence. It what was I, at the time. What I'm calling it is an art-shaped hole in your soul that you needed to fill. Mm. That's interesting. I wanted you to yeah. comment there because I yeah. that's a good way of describing it for me yeah. because I probably yeah. deep down yeah. ha- had a something I needed to fill up. Yeah. And Absolutely. It, and it still it still fills me. If something ever happened to me, I'd be devastated. Like mm. to those paintings. Uh, mm. they're not brilliant paintings. I don't know. Pro- I don't even know. I wouldn't have a clue what they're worth. But it's but one is of Cronulla Point, another one he used to Lister used to paint at Palm Beach or that way quite a lot. And there's a one with a sh- old steamship with a bit of steam coming out of the funnel of the steam. No, Streeton. No, no, no. Sorry, this is the Lister. It's a Lister. Yeah, oh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and then he's and uh, I just love looking at them. They're actually quite peaceful. Mm. There's something, uh, and I, I, I just I haven't spoken about art for a many a long, 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 long time. Like I haven't even really thought about it. Mm. But having this conversation with you today has made me revisit how important art is to me. It's mm. actually given me an opportunity to put into context what I consider to be rarity, mm. rarity about how I feel about art and mm. the energy that art gives me. Well, it's the value of your feeling about yourself. Yeah. On, on, in, a, in a way that's nobody else's business. Yeah. Because it's your private enjoyment. Which is a very, mm. I mean, I find that I've got a great deal of value out of this conversation today. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I don't want it to be about me. It was actually about you. But I, no. I have to say, like, I mean, you're a friend, but also this is a an important topic, your book, and, and you know, how you've changed and, and how your life is today. And it's all about – but I've got a new energy now as a result of our conversation today mm. about art. I'm not saying I necessarily want to go and buy more art, but I, but there is an energy that I, I'm now going to get from my art mm. or renewed energy I'm going to get from what I have in my oh, place. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. And, I, and I hope people buy the book. I hope people uh, can get energy out of what you read and then start to think about such so important words. Fuck, they're so important. Mm. Colour and depth. Thank uh, you. 
Colour and Death, mate. That's how I best describe you, you Colour and Depth. Actually, I want to rename the book Colour and Depth. Colour and Depth. I know, son of a gun. But <laughs> <laughs> son of a gun, exactly. <laughs> Tim Olsen, thanks very much for straight My talk, pleasure, mate. Mark. Thank you for having me. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Jonathan Leondis. This is a mentored podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 